What is up, Bitcoiners? A quick reminder before we get into the show, please go over to your podcast app and go look up FedWatch, Bitcoin, and Macro. That is where you're going to be finding this show moving forward. Uh, We shortly will be ceasing publishing on the Bitcoin Magazine feed. That feed is going to be exclusively for Bitcoin Magazine uh, exclusive content but we will have the dedicated FedWatch feed. So please migrate over there. It should be live on Spotify now for everyone who is asking me about that. So everywhere where you find your podcast, you should find it. And if you can't, go ping me on Twitter and I will I'll do my best to fix that. Um, we have a really great show lined up for you guys. Um, Ansel just published a fantastic article reviewing 2020 central bank policy on Bitcoin Magazine. So if you haven't read that yet, Go over to Bitcoin Magazine, go check it out. But Ansel goes through what uh, the Fed, what the ECB, and what the Bank of Japan have been doing, why he excludes uh, China from from the update, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff in the article. And we're going to talk about it on this final show of the year. Before we get into the show, quick announcement from our sponsor. It is Level, L-V-L dot co. Level is a really cool Bitcoin bank. Effectively, what they're trying to do is they are trying to make it so you can bank and live off of Bitcoin. You no longer need to go and buy Bitcoin with your paycheck. Your paycheck is just deposited into your level FDIC insured bank account. And big news from Russell Okun today, he's going to be taking 50% of his salary directly into Bitcoin. And you can do that too with level. When you get your paycheck directly deposited into lvl.co they are rolling out a feature where you can choose what percentage of your paycheck or what percentage of that check you want automatically converted into bitcoin and it's converted into bitcoin with no feed no spread nothing like that directly into your level bank account it is or your level uh bitcoin wallet so go check out lvl.co it is a new and really like slick fintech company that is using Bitcoin and trying to help you bank with Bitcoin. They're not doing the exchange thing. They're not doing the shitcoin thing. It's really, really cool. So go check them out. LVL.co. Put BTC Media in the promo line so that way they know we sent you there. All right, Ansel. This was a really great review. I think every Bitcoiner who is interested in macro, interested in central bank policy, needs to read this to get fully up to date. You want to kind of jump into uh, this review? What's up, Christian? Hope you had a Merry Christmas. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We were just shooting uh, the shit and we came up with this idea. Let's do a year in review of all the central bank or major central bank policies. And so I dug through all of their press releases from the Fed, the ECB, and the Bank of Japan, uh, and picked out as many details as I could that were digestible and put them in this post. I didn't do the Bank of uh, China, like you said, or the People's Bank of China, because their numbers are just very untrustworthy. So I thought, hey, let's just look at the the banks where we can really trust their numbers and go with that. Um, Where should we start? You want to start with the Fed? Yeah, let's do it. So in in the article, you go Fed, ECB, Bank of Japan. So let's just stick with that. So it's uh, it's uh, consistent with the article. All right. So big takeaways from the Fed. Um, they dropped their interest rate, their Fed funds rate from 150 basis points down to zero. Uh, they were the only major central bank to do that uh, out of these three. 
because the other two were already at zero or negative. So the Fed had some room to go down to zero. They started doing a QE of $80 billion a month, and that's continuing. I think the first few months in March and April were higher than 80, but there was never a policy until they did. They changed it to 80 billion per month. Um, and they provided a potential of up to $1.95 trillion in lending programs, but not everybody, you know, they weren't very used, which I pull out in a table in the, the piece here, how, how much was used or is still being used. So out of these lending programs that they had, I mean, this was the alphabet soup of lending programs that you probably heard about, uh, PDCF, CPFF, et cetera. Um, well, out of all of this $1.9 trillion in potential lending right now, there's only 85 billion outstanding that not very many people actually took up the fed on these, these loans, which I thought was extremely interesting. Thoughts so on that? can you, can we talk about that a little bit? Like I know we have discussed maybe why that's happening on this show previously, but can you kind of get the listeners up to date on this is the money creation, the burr that has, you know, everyone's talking about, but you know, if you look at the data, it's undersubscribed. The market is, is not using it. Yeah. I don't know why that is The same thing happened in 2019 when they went into the repo market, you know, and they opened up this repo facility. Uh, it was really just a repo desk where they would uh, participate in the market. Uh, they had unlimited amounts of money there available and very few people ever took them up. I think, you know, they might've had 10 billion a night when the overall market is $5 trillion a night They go in the repo market. So a lot of people weren't taking the fed up on this. Now, one of the theories is that there's a stigma attached to this type of activity. So uh, like the fed has this open mark or open window, right? And the businesses or banks that get in trouble can go and borrow from the fed. But that action actually tells the market, this company or this bank is in trouble. And so then they, the, the rest of their lending dries up. Uh, so there is a stigma attached to getting these rescue packages. Makes sense. Is, is there anything to be said here around like the banks are, you know, the, the banks themselves, you know, they have reserves, right? They're, they're not under collateralized theoretically. Um, may, maybe they just don't need this. And the issue is that the banks themselves aren't lending because there's no reason to, you know, interest rates are so low. There's such a small pool of people with good enough credit um, for them to actually, you know, be worthwhile for them to make out, uh, you know, make out these loans or, or take or put out loans. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, that's true that this time around, this financial crisis is the banks are very well capitalized. So in 2008 and 2009, that, that was a banking crisis. Uh, but this time, yeah, they, they are fully capitalized and ready to go. Uh, and they, I think maybe some of the lending happened directly from the government, you know, like from the treasury with these rescue packages that they had out there and people didn't have to go and borrow from the fed directly. That could be part of it. Um, but yeah, I don't know why these programs were not used to their fullest extent. You would think, especially like the main street lending program had a possible, uh, $600 billion. And right now there's only $6 billion outstanding. So they, they're just, people are not taking the fed up on these things. I think that the 
bottom line is the Fed has, they, they did a lot of monetary policy this, this year, a very nuanced monetary, monetary policy, um, but they didn't do the most per GDP. So uh, uh, to tie this into the next two here, um, you know, the ECB did roughly the same amount, but their GDP is smaller. And Japan did more and, and their GDP is much smaller than the, the U.S. So I think if you're comparing central banks and monetary policy, my takeaway from the Fed is that they tried to do a nuanced approach and really get in there with it and not just flood the market like we'll see in the ECB here. So the ECB, they started 2020 already doing QE because they've had many monetary or sorry, uh, like financial crises in the last 10 years where the US, you know, 2008-9, we kind of reflated and recovered a little bit until 2020 or 2019. Well, every two or three years, the ECB is going through a crisis. And so they were still printing 20 billion euros per month uh, as part of their QE programs. Uh, and their interest rates were already at zero or below zero. So they, that's a pretty bad place to start a financial crisis, if you ask me. Their response was just one big program, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, PEP. We talked about it on the show here. It started as $750 billion in March, got raised by $600 billion in June, and finally another $500 billion in December, just a couple weeks ago. So um, they have... One program uh, within this program, of course, it's a little bit more nuanced, but uh, where the, the Fed uh, had all of these different programs, they have one program, the ECB has one program, and then they nest everything under that. So um, I thought that was really interesting. Any comments on that? Well, I, I guess kind of curious, like, are there any political or structural reasons why these two central banks have kind of taken different approaches. That would make a lot of sense. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't want to dig into this too much. I know that in the article you, tr you tried just to display the data and not necessarily like um, assume or come to any conclusions. So I don't want to do that too much here. Can you kind of break down a little bit more about like what was in the ECB's uh, program specifically? Did they try to tar target similar groups? Was it undersubscribed? Like how did it work? Sure. I don't know about the undersubscription. I think because they increased it twice, uh, I would assume that they had quite a bit of demand there. Um, so it was really deep, um, focused on commercial paper, um, but you had to have uh, sufficient credit. Right. So you had to be a bank or a large business to qualify for a lot of these things. That was in the first thing in March. Then in June, they expanded that to make it a little bit easier for other people to qualify to uh, get these loans. But remember, these are all loans. These are not grants or anything. So these need to be paid back uh, with interest <laughs> at interest, even though the the um, ECB's interest rate is negative 50 basis points which it stayed at all year. They didn't change their interest rate at all, all year. Um, these, these loans will need to be re repaid. So that is something interesting. And the last, the last one that they just passed in December, um, really, I think it was just to up the total and expand the deadline. So this is, this program is supposed to now continue through March of 2022. 
Any conclusions that you uh, you want to like have of, of the ECB before we jump over to the Bank of Japan? Um, well, I think it's unlikely that they will ever stop QE. They have never stopped QE since the day they started, pretty much. They are doing it more and bigger than the, the Fed is, especially relative to their GDP. So if we were to see any inflation from this, I would just say the ECB would probably be a place that this inflation would show up sooner rather than in the United States with the dollar. And right now, based on the data, we're seeing crushing deflation in the ECB. Is that correct? Correct. The euro is hitting multi-year highs against the dollar. Um, And again, if all these loans need to be repaid, remember they're having to repay them with appreciated euros, which uh, some of these countries might not like, uh, might cause some internal conflicts there within the eurozone yeah so a stronger euro is really bad for these loans that have to be repaid by these businesses that have been wrecked by policy effectively they've been wrecked by policy um i had a i had a question i'm blanking out on that um I mean, it, it seems to me, okay, so it, it came back to me. Okay, so I was actually reading a tweet. Um, it was tweeted out by Stephanie Kelton regarding um, Congress's stimulus package and how some conservatives were saying the stimulus should be given to people who actually need it, not just everyone. And the person was commenting that Stephanie Kelton was retweeting was saying, no, we don't have a good way of assessing who needs it now, you know, who needs it and who deserves it. 2019 was very different than 2020. We need to give everyone the the stimulus and then we can tax them back in hindsight or whatever. Um, and that to me demonstrates, it just like demonstrates even from the proponents of central banks should have more control over monetary policy that they can't effectively deliver stimulus. Like they can't effectively deliver funds and they can't effectively reallocate capital. Like structurally, they can't do it. They don't have the information they need. And therefore, you know, they're either not, they're going to not, they're going to be extremely biased on who they give, you know, resources to like what the ECB is doing at first. You have to be a big business to get it. Um, or, uh, they're, they're going to give it to everyone and, uh, and then have to like, you know, figure out how to claim it back in some way, which they never do. Right. They effectively, if it's out, it's a grant or whatever it is. Um, it kind of never gets reclaimed. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, like, like where's the biggest pain point? Like why can't these central banks in your opinion, create inflation? Why can't they get funds to where they need to be? I mean, this hits at the heart of this inflation deflation debate, um, why they can't do this because, uh, it takes two to tango, right? You need to demand lenders need to want to lend and borrowers need to want to borrow when the interest rates are so low, borrowers would like to borrow, but, Lenders don't want to lend. It's too risky at 0%, right? They, they need to have uh, some uh, return on their, on their loan because risk is not zero. I don't care who you are. The risk is not zero f- for that borrower. And so when a, a bank looks at making a loan and they're going to get 0%, you know, that is not enticing enough for them to lend. And so, um, that is the natural progression of a credit-based money, in my, my opinion, is it, you keep adding debt, you keep expanding monetarily, and 
uh, you get to a point where the debt burden gets too large and people don't want to lend. And the, there is enough money out there to lend, but nobody wants to lend it. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And it is the solution from a fiat perspective what the MMTers are calling for, which is just screw debt, like let's start just issuing as we need it. And like, that's what the, that's what the treasury is for. Yeah, but that has never worked. Um, that's been tried many, many times throughout history. Um, different places in colonial United States tried it. Um, different places in Europe obviously have tried it. Um, anytime they try pure fiat money like that, it doesn't last very long. It only lasts a couple years before it uh, goes bust. And if they were to transition to something like that now, try to transition, um, it would be extremely inflationary almost immediately. And I think that it would um, really hurt the global economy. I, I'm, I've said on my podcast before that I think it could take the global economy down by 90% if they try to do something like this. So um, I think these these central bankers are aware of this. They know that they can't do anything too drastic or they they threaten to crash the whole system. And so they're, they would rather extend and pretend. That's what we... Everybody has been saying that about politics for so long and about the, the debt ceiling and, and all this stuff with the uh, fiscal policy, but the central bankers are doing the same thing. They will extend or pretend they'll stagnate until Bitcoin can take over. Yeah. Well, two, two parallel systems. It's a piece I'm actually going to be writing, talking about um, the extend and pretend and then Bitcoin and gaining in liquidity simultaneously. All right. Well, I feel like I, I took you on a little tangent there, but let's transition over to what the Bank of Japan has been doing. Okay. So uh, the Bank of Japan is the oldest running QE program. They've pretty much been running it nonstop since uh, 2003, I believe is when they started QE. Um, they In 2013, they started what's called QQE, uh, quantitative and qualitative easing. So they're going at it all guns a blazing. They, they came into 2020 already on QQE uh, with interest rates at zero, pegged at zero. Uh, they were trying, they, they have been trying to do yield curve control for a long time. So what they do is they peg the short-term rates at negative 10 basis points and they peg the 10-year rate, try to peg it at zero. So that is how they're trying to control the yield curve over there. Um, so they're coming in the year uh, already purchasing 80 trillion euros or sorry, 80 trillion yen annually. And that's about $770 billion is what their QE program was before 2020 even started. Then in March, they added a bunch of things. They added uh, 8 trillion yen in purchases of general debt, I guess. Uh, they have some targeted things like for, uh, what do I have written down here? ETFs and REITs. They buy up to 12 trillion yen uh, in this program for, of ETFs and REITs. But they, I know that they do a lot for corporate paper. Like they, they buy specifically corporate bonds and corporate paper uh, on, in, in a different program. Uh, so that's separate from their general QE buying of, of government JGBs. If you look at these three central banks in secession, it goes the Federal Reserve, which is on the way to start acting more and more like the ECB, which is on the way to start acting more and more like the Bank of Japan. Like they're all progressing through whatever stage in this 
you know, similar global crisis that they're in. You know, Japan started first. The ECB really kind of got going in high gear second. And then um, here now with coronavirus, the Fed, you know, before coronavirus, but, you know, exacerbated by coronavirus, the Fed is now entering into this kind of like QE death spiral, right? It's like they talk about the Bitcoin hash death spiral, which is never, there's no evidence of it. But we can see very clearly here that there is a central bank QE death spiral. I mean, it's really incredible just kind of seeing the progression. Yeah, Japan leads everything. So if you want to know what the ECB is going to do this year, look at Japan four years ago, most likely. And uh, for the the U.S., we're just about eight years behind Japan. Um, It's nothing's new. And that's one thing I think is amazing when we get into the inflation deflation debate is like, uh, guys, Japan has, quote unquote, printed 10 times more money than the fed has relative to their GDP and they have deflation. Like there is, I don't understand how people think the U S who is the least um, offensive out of all of these central banks in their quote unquote printing, how the fed is going to get the inflation. So, and I ended, I end the article here with a chart that shows this. So the BOJ, the ECB and the fed, their uh, central banks balance sheets relative to, East, their GDP. The, the Fed is at, oh man, let's see, what does it say? The Fed is at 33%. The ECB is at 55%. And the BOJ is at 126% of GDP. And that is not government debt in Japan. That is their central bank's balance sheet. So um, pretty crazy numbers. So, I mean, how long can this go on? Like, that's the ultimate question, right? Gold bugs have been calling for the crack up boom for for decades. You know, is is this time different or can extend and pretend or pretend and extend continue? I don't know. I think it just continues and it adds incentive to people to come to Bitcoin, right? To flee, um, not flee inflation, but flee stagnation. And we've talked about that many times on this show. Uh, but if you look at this green line on this chart for the BOJ, it's pretty much straight up to the right for the, the amount of quote unquote money printing they've had. And their, their economy is stagnant. It's grown at like 1% for the last 20 years every year. So I expect that to be exactly what happens to the West, the rest of the world. I don't see why anything should change except for Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is where this money will slowly leak over to, uh, where the value and the growth will leak over to. We've talked about this many times. I think you agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, let's kind of end this like looking forward into the beginning of next year. Um, Since the last time we recorded, I think Bitcoin's price has gone up about $7,000. So that's been pretty incredible to watch. Like, What's your sense moving forward? It it seems as though people are extremely bullish still. Um, I haven't really seen the price show any sign of weakness, like um, narrative wise, price wise, you know, what are you anticipating here? Well, we're at the start of the bull run for sure. Uh, I think there, there will be pullbacks along the way. So just be careful that you don't get squeezed Um, there. It's hard to know exactly like, when there will be pullbacks, of course, because uh, there's no horizontal price structure to measure off of here. So we're kind of in the the blue sky country and we'll see where it goes. I think that right now we could be in 
um, store for some consolidation because we're around the end of the year. We're going to have maybe some selling for taxes, maybe some selling for rebalancing and things like that in portfolios. So um, we could be dealing with a, a little bit of a pullback or a little bit of a consolidation at this time, but we'll see. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of demand from a lot of people. Like you were saying, the, the football player that is putting 50% of his salary into Bitcoin, there, there's a lot of those types of stories and that's not small demand, right? So we, the price could just keep going. Yeah. Your thoughts. I mean, what are your thoughts on the price? Yeah, I'm going to tease uh, a piece that I'm doing with a pretty famous Bitcoin bull. And uh, the idea is, you know, Bitcoin is was a quote unquote illegitimate asset and it is transcending into a must own asset. So now the entire world is realizing that they're short Bitcoin. Um, so that's very different than in the past. So a lot of Bitcoiners kind of are using heuristics from the last three cycles, which makes sense, but Bitcoin takes the path of most pain. So if everyone thinks it's going to be a slam dunk, it's this is exactly how it's going to happen. Again, that probably means it's going to be different this time. Well, it'll be different slightly in the details, but it won't be different in the overall structure. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? And then we can, uh, we can close this one out. Yeah, just, um, okay, so it'll be different. It'll rhyme, right? It, like history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. Uh, don't think that it's going to be terribly different. It's going to look pretty much the same, just maybe at a grander scale or something like that. Um, but yeah, don't, uh, don't, don't expect it to be too much different than the last time. Price will still go up. Uh, people will still FOMO in and there'll be a mania phase and then there'll be a correction just like every other time. Yep. I mean, that is the deep consensus. And just to tease the piece out of the pod is, you know, we will be exploring some, uh, some alternative ideas to that deep consensus. Let's close this one out. What are your final words? Um, nothing. I'm, I'm excited. This, the, this uh, article will be coming out on uh, Bitcoin Magazine. I think by the time that this podcast drops, it'll be on Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, it was fun. And yeah, guys, this is what you get from this show is you get me digging through press releases from central banks and making some tables of all of their different monetary policies. And I didn't draw conclusions in the post very much, but I will just say that, look, this central bank balance sheet stuff is not inflationary. Uh, it is deflationary. We will continue along the road of, of stagnation and the inflationists, they can't tell me why it's different this time. So that's it. All right, guys, if you have an opposite opinion, tweet at Ansel Lindner on Twitter. Um, go and find his Bitcoin and Markets Discord. That's a great way to get involved with Ansel, and he has a great community in there. Um, and yeah, go follow at Bitcoin Magazine. You can follow me at CK underscore Snarks. And uh, keep an eye out. We are continuously pumping out fantastic Bitcoin content. So uh, a lot of good stuff. Last reminder, subscribe to the new FedWatch podcast feed. All right, guys. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. 
Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research. Music